from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloronipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 19th. Today, a guide to the most litigated election yet. And what it's like to be a Muslim Trump supporter. Hi, Michaela. Hi. Hi, Rena. How's it going? It's good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for um, taking the time. For the past couple of weeks, one of our producers, Rena Flores, has been looking into all the lawsuits related to the election, where they're happening, what they're arguing over, which voters they affect. And in the process, she came across this website that lets lawyers become volunteers to get involved in election-related legal battles. One of the first listings here is for uh, lawyers needed to volunteer with the Arizona Rapid Response Legal Team in order to assure that every eligible voter can cast a ballot that is counted. Michaela is a lawyer. I live out in San Francisco, California. And for the past several months, she's been working on voting rights and election protection leading up to this fall's election. A lot of what Michaela has been doing is actually not getting paid for that work. Um, This project looks like it's, uh, they're looking for lawyers to participate in training about issues that will arise during elections, draft complaints, affidavits, and other pleadings for filing in court, and perhaps arguing before a judge. Instead, she's been signing up to volunteer her legal services through this platform called We the Action. All right, lawyers, let's put that law degree to good use. Join thousands of other lawyers at WeTheAction.org and sign up to volunteer for election protection. Lately, WeTheAction has been recruiting volunteer lawyers for the battles around the country over this year's election. And I wanted to talk to Michaela because it started to crystallize for me that during this election cycle, all of these volunteers were necessary because there are unprecedented levels of election lawsuits. This indicates, yes, it is for lawyers. Um, The time commitment is 11 to 20 hours. Participants can participate remotely. I'm really struck by it because it it feels like TaskRabbit in a way for lawyers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. I think that's right. And it's a great way for lawyers who have some time but not full time to devote to it because there's such a wide array of projects they have to plug into. Do you remember when you first heard about We The Action? I first heard about We The Action earlier this year, probably around February or March. In politics, we always talk about an October surprise. COVID-19 has been a March surprise in this primary process. That's when the pandemic hit. We can have drive-by ballots. Right. You can, you can, you can drive by and stick your ballot yeah. into the box. When primary elections were happening. There was the hand gel for voters as they walked in. Uh, the poll workers were occasionally wiping down. When suddenly voting started to look a little different. Just into our newsroom, a judge with the Franklin County Court of Common Pleas has rejected a lawsuit to delay Ohio's primary election. We're going to go now to NBC. And that's also when the lawsuits started piling in. 
Democrats have filed a federal lawsuit against Governor Greg Abbott and the Texas Secretary Two of State. Two Supreme Courts weighed the election before, and now a group of Milwaukee area voters already suing, and now Democrats also saying every legal option is on the table. The first thought was that, wow, this is really feeling different. That's Jessica First Johnson. She's a Republican elections lawyer working for a firm in D.C. that specializes in this kind of law. And she says earlier this year, there was just this panic setting in about elections. Wow, like we've got primaries that are are happening, you know, now. I mean, I think Wisconsin, for me, was the first big primary where, you know, the rules of the game were, were literally changing, um, you know, five days before the elections. As Jessica explained, it's not completely unusual for lawsuits to happen in the middle of an election year. Litigation in the election law context is certainly not new. And, you know, I'll note that we're heading into a redistricting cycle. So we, we would probably be ramping up, you know, on litigation anyway in a normal cycle. But this new wave of lawsuits, it was because of all the last minute changes on how to vote in a pandemic, closing down in-person polling places, expanding mailed ballots. Gosh, the, the amount of litigation that we're seeing at this point, the fact that it's not slowing down and we're 19 days before the election, the fact that, you know, vo- voting is already happening across the country. And yet we're still seeing suits that really do impact people's ability to, to understand their options in terms of voting. All of that really is quite remarkable and um, unprecedented as far as I'm concerned. Then there are the people actually bringing the lawsuits. I would say at its peak, we were involved in over 40 cases uh, in probably over 20 states. Justin Reamer is the chief counsel for the National Republican Party. We filed, um, I think, 25 cases since the pandemic began, mostly focused on trying to make sure people can vote safely this year. And that's Dale Ho, the head of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Which means... I primarily spend my time supervising our voting rights-related litigation around the country. The political parties, along with the campaigns for President Trump and Vice President Biden, they have put a ton of cash and resources into these lawsuits. The RNC is spending over $20 million on its Election Day operations and litigation and recount preparation efforts. And so that consists of dozens of attorneys that either work in-house with the RNC and other party committees, as well as national law firms, lawyers and national law firms, and lawyers that we've retained in the battleground states as well. And then finally, there has been a recruitment effort of volunteer attorneys that will assist uh, during early voting and the absentee voting process on election day and then post-election in a close election. As far as what these legal teams were actually trying to do, they boil down to a couple basic ideas. On the one hand, you have Dale at the ACLU, who was actively trying to change some of the usual election rules. He felt that they needed to accommodate the extenuating circumstances around the pandemic. Normally, we spend our time fighting over new rules that have been adopted in the last two years. The pandemic in 2020 has scrambled everything. Um, Rules that have been in place for a very long time, which ordinarily are maybe a small burden, a nuisance, stop some number of ballots from getting counted, take on a whole new character in the pandemic. So restrictions on who can vote by mail, for example, right? 
16 states normally don't let every eligible voter vote by mail. We want to preserve the existing safeguards that are in the process uh, that prevent fraud from taking place. And on the other side, Republicans like Justin wanted to make sure that the laws stayed the same. Everyone's always saying, you know, there's really not much election fraud. There's really not much voter fraud. Uh, well, I think that could be that that point could be argued, but let's even concede that for the moment. Uh, I think there's not as much fraud as there could be uh, because of the fact that these safeguards are in place. And so we're fighting to protect those. And mostly almost almost all the litigation we're engaged in is when we come in as a defendant to defend an existing state law that's on the books that is being challenged by the Democrats. And then there's the question of what all these lawsuits are even about. I'm up to 286 cases at last count, and I'm sure that I've missed one in between the start of this interview and now. This is another Justin, Justin Levitt. He's an election law professor at Loyola Law School in California. So I have sued election officials. I have defended election officials. I have represented election officials in telling other courts how election disputes should be resolved. I've sued people and defended people and represented people of both major parties and neither party and those whose affiliation I did not know. And then most recently, I've been watching an awful lot of litigation. So this cycle, my main role is analyst. Can you give a sense of the breadth of those cases? What are the kinds of issues that they're looking at and and where they're happening? If you live in America somewhere, chances are good you've seen a piece of election litigation in your state. Um, They're clustered, unsurprisingly, in states that are viewed as battleground states. So Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and North Carolina and Georgia and Texas may have more than their share of litigation, but it's really all over the place. So to the extent that I have been able to follow along with some of these election-related lawsuits, the thing that I always find is that they seem incredibly complicated, incredibly like detail-oriented, and there are just so many of them and so many different variations depending on the state, depending on the county, and it's really difficult to just get your head around what exactly people are fighting over. So do you think you could like lay out the kinds of buckets of litigation we're seeing or the parts of the election process that people are arguing over in courts right now? Sure. And your feeling about how difficult this is to get your hands around is not unusual, and it's right. There's, with 280-some cases in 45 different states, there are a lot of different combinations about what the claims are, what court system you're in, uh, what the judges are caring about, what law is being contested. So there's an awful lot of variation in there. But there are four main types of cases that we've seen so far. And again, most of them are already resolved. There are just a few that are trickling to conclusion. Number one, uh, cases about who or what is on the ballot. Things like signature thresholds or deadlines or the way that we collect signatures. You know, in a pandemic, you can't go out to big crowds and ask people to sign things. And so lots of litigants asked for relief from the normal procedures to getting on to the ballot. Ballots are already out in every single state. In fact, millions and millions and millions of ballots are coming back already. So all of those lawsuits are over. But that was a big chunk through the summer and early fall. A second category are lawsuits over the mail-in process. This year, more than in the past, more voters will rely on voting by mail simply because the capacity to vote in person is a little diminished because of the pandemic this year. Um, The process is secure, 
but a lot of litigants wanted modifications to it. Not only whether you could vote by mail without an excuse, that was a series of lawsuits, but also the conditions for voting by mail, whether you needed witness signatures or notary signatures, the deadlines, the postage. The idea of, of witness signatures or notary signatures under these circumstances feels like a really high bar to be able to cast a ballot. And that's exactly what the plaintiffs were saying. If you're telling us we can't go outside and you're telling us we can't congregate in groups, how can you tell us that in order to cast a vote that can be counted, we have to go to a professional who's not sitting in their office signing off on a piece of paper? And many of the sort of conditions that we might expect out of people normally got a lot harder this year, as everybody knows in all walks of life, elections included. And that was part of the claims that people were making is, under these conditions, in order to safeguard the fundamental right to vote, you've got to relax these rules a little bit. Some courts said yes, some courts said no. Some are still litigating some of those issues, like the deadlines for returning ballots um, and mm. ways to notify people of mistakes and, and be able to cure them if something happens along the way. Which, of course, if those decisions are still being litigated right now, I mean, that creates a lot of confusion for the people who presumably would be helpful to know when is the deadline for returning their vote and what happens if there's a discrepancy with that ballot. It does. Uh, and we're getting to the point where that's exactly right, where it's more helpful to know one way or another than to keep fighting over the outcome. I'll say very few people plan to mail their ballot in late. So there's still a little bit of time to work out exactly the final date to return your ballot. By the way, everybody listening should return it now uh, if they're voting by mail. Good advice. Similarly, if there are mistakes in the process, nobody plans to make a mistake. So it's still, you might see a little bit more litigation over exactly the process for notifying voters that there's been a mistake and then curing it. But most of those fights are, as you say, over. We need to know what the rules are, and those are swiftly drawing to a close. And then what about litigation around in-person voting and what actually happens if you show up to a polling place? Yeah, great question. That's the third category of lawsuits happening this year are, is litigation around voting in person. Things like curbside voting procedures, which precincts are open, whether there's PPE available, the sorts of processes for voting in person. Because even in this conversation about more voting by mail, it's never been about entirely voting by mail. Just like there are communities that are hard to count in the census, there are communities that are hard to mail. Communities that really need or really, really want the ability to go vote in person. That includes very rural and very urban communities. Um, it includes some racial minorities. It includes a lot of people with language assistance needs or individuals with disabilities. You can get a lot more assistance if you vote in person. The question's always been about the capacity and saving enough capacity to serve those communities. That's part of why there's been the shift to voting by mail. But it also means, yeah, the conditions of voting in person have also been contested. Hmm. And those two pretty much all worked out at this point. There are a few lingering lawsuits about a few uh, conditions of voting in person, um, but not many left. And then you said that there are four buckets. So what is the last one? It's pushback against all of the other three. So the three that I just mentioned are about trying to get the courts to change the procedures that exist. The fourth category is pushback against executive action or legislative action changing the procedures in light of the pandemic. So uh, sometimes people have said executive officials have gone too far overstepping their state constitutional authority. Sometimes people have said legislators have gone too far, that they overstep federal law um, that binds them in some way. I'll say that latter category of lawsuits hasn't been very successful so far. 
where the state or where government has made changes to accommodate the pandemic, courts have by and large accepted those changes. Um, the courts have been a little more mixed on granting affirmative changes against the state wishes. After hearing Justin talk about all these lawsuits. Cases like the Michigan Alliance for Retired Americans versus Ben, Democracy North Carolina versus the North Carolina State Board of Elections, the Pennsylvania Democratic Party versus Bukvar, or conversely, the Donald J. Trump for President versus Bukvar case in Pennsylvania. I spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not all this litigation was actually good for democracy. And even the other Justin, Justin Reamer from the RNC, said that he does see some of the problems. I'm somewhat torn because certainly, you know, the party needs to represent its interests. And if it needs to litigate to do that and, and to protect our voters and to make sure the election is being conducted with integrity, we feel like we have no choice but to engage in litigation. But to be frank, I'm also very mindful uh, of the disruption that all this last minute litigation has on the elections process. At every turn, we've got to fight to expand and protect the right to vote. That's lawyer Michaela Davis again. And although these court cases are pushing right up to the election, um, you know, if we can get good rulings that add more ballot boxes uh, to counties and enable a few more voters to safely cast their ballots, then it's worth it. Part of me wondered, somewhat cynically, how much all this litigation is actually about what people believe is right and wrong, and how much of it is just about getting your side to vote. I actually asked Justin from the RNC about that. Do you think that part of this litigation is about politics and about just trying to increase chances of winning an election? Uh, I certainly think that it is on the Democratic side. Um, But not on your side. No, I don't. And and the reason for that is because, by and large, these lawsuits uh, are being initiated by the Democratic Party and not by the Republican Party. And so uh, certainly we have launched some. We have launched offensive litigation. Uh, but on our, our instances of launching offensive litigation were really to preserve uh, the status quo that existed. In a former life, I was an election official And uh, there was nothing that we hated more was getting a lawsuit a few weeks before the election when you're extremely busy, you know, because of that, I have a lot of respect for uh, what the state and local election officials are are out there doing. It's it's a difficult job. Um, And, you know, they're they're, for the most part, I think they're trying to do their best, even if we disagree with them. But it's a a tough job, especially uh, in the middle of a pandemic. It must be strange to be on kind of the other side of the table right now. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, when I was, you know, when I was uh, an election official, I uh, I viewed the parties with some. I mean, even my own party. Right. Obviously, no, no, not a surprise. I'm Republican, but my own party, even I just viewed as you know, kind of difficult uh, to deal with uh, both sides. Obviously, um, and now on this side, obviously, I have a different perspective. I mean, we're we're an important stakeholder uh, in the elections process. But if all these lawsuits were necessary, what does that say about the state of our elections? 
Like the fact that we have a task rabbit for lawyers and we the action, or that the political parties have to hire this army of attorneys. If they need to exist for the election to run fairly, what does that say about the way that we run this most fundamental democratic process? It says that this is contested, but also the fact that it's so contested speaks to a broader problem. Again, this is Justin Levitt, the law professor. I think that it shows you that we're not really good at rapid response. Another thing this reveals is the chronic underfunding of elections in this country. We get what we pay for, and we don't pay for a lot. There was a request, and the call to request is really underselling. There was an urgent need by state and local administrators for funding to deal with the pandemic that was put in, you know, April or May, they started begging for Congress to issue more funding. And in the scope of trillions of dollars of coronavirus relief for the economy, they were asking for a relative teaspoon for $4 billion, a drop in that bucket, to support the democracy that all of the economic recovery is built on. And they're still waiting. Request in May, and it's now October, and that money's not coming, which meant that there was an awful lot of duct tape uh, being used to fix the election system as best as could be in order to try and uh, not even patch holes in the bucket. You know, normal in this time, you're looking for enough duct tape to patch the holes in the bucket. This time, officials were looking for enough duct tape to make a bucket out of. There was no bucket. They're trying to string together what they can, and Unfortunately, some of the litigation is a proxy for fights about funding and what the administrative realities could have been had we decided to fund the elections properly. That is absolutely a chronic problem. It's also one that I'm really hoping voters remember, not only on November 3rd. I hope they remember on November 4th and on January 3rd and as new legislative sessions come in, we only get to change the election process if we remember what it was like when legislatures come back into session with the power to change the process. And we have an awful lot of amnesia the moment after the election's done. We breathe a sigh of relief and we say, whew, thank God we won't have to go through that again. And the minute we forget what we went through, the more we doom ourselves to going through it again and again and again, year after year, cycle after cycle. Justin Levitt is an election law professor at Loyola Law School. Rena Flores is a producer for Post Reports. And now, one more thing. We're taking a look at different groups of voters around the country ahead of the election. And our producer, Lena Mohammed became interested in this group of voters that we don't talk about very much. Trump supporters who also happen to be Muslim. So in 2016, I voted for Donald Trump. And in 2020, I am going to be voting for Donald Trump again. My name is Mike Hashem. I'm 27 years old. I live in the... Uh, metro Detroit area. I'm a businessman and I am a uh, Arab American Muslim Republican. 
Muslims vote predominantly for Democrats. According to the Pew Research Center, three-quarters of Muslim voters said that they cast a ballot for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. The Democratic Party has a great, great marketing tool. They market to the ethnic communities and especially to the Muslim communities. They have this machine that's working nonstop to promote the Democratic Party within the Muslim communities versus the Republican Party. As a Muslim myself, I feel that the Republican Party has not done enough outreach to the Muslim community um, versus the Democratic Party. And that's why you see a lot of voters, especially Muslim voters, leaning Democrat, because that's the only party that has ever reached out to them. But I could tell you this, there is a tremendous number of people that are voting for Trump, especially from the Dearborn Arab American area here in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. But they don't come out and say that the Republicans are voting for Trump because of the fear of some backlash from the community. So um, uh, we're just going to like uh, go back a little in the timeline. So um, 2015, 2016, the environment, I mean, it was supercharged and Trump was this huge character. And one could say like one of the most defining moments of his campaign was like when he was talking about the Muslim registry and then he was talking about the Muslim ban. He was saying things like Islam hates us. Yes. And he called Mexican rapists. And the, obviously, like, there are all those moments, but the ones I want to focus on are obviously, like, the ones where he's talking about Muslims, um, because you are a... Um, I'm a Muslim myself. Yep. How do you, like, re- reconcile? So, honestly, anything that hurts my people, I'm totally against, you know? And when he said those remarks, I sort of looked at it like okay, people are going to hate you because of you saying this. But also, we cannot just judge a person on that aspect. Like, I'm looking at an aspect from a business standpoint, like, what is he going to do business-wise and job growth-wise, you know, in this country? Yes, every president has some type of Middle East policy, and not every president has had a successful one. But I cannot just throw everything away and focus on that one aspect. So I'm not voting for him based on his Middle Eastern policies, but voting for him based off his uh, economic policies that he's done within the United States to make us uh, dependent on ourselves and to put American jobs first and the American worker first. So that's why I'm voting for him is because we need jobs and we need to keep America first on the platform globally. I urge Uh, Arab Americans to come out and start saying that they're Republicans. So they will hear us and they will note us and that they will be prepared for us when we come and when we demand things to be done for our Arab American communities all over the U.S. Mike Hashim is a business owner in Dearborn, Michigan. Lena Muhammad is a producer on Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On Friday, we had an episode that we're really proud of. It's called The Life of George Floyd. It's an hour-long show that delves into how systemic racism shaped everything about the world that George Floyd lived in. If you haven't heard it, go back to Friday's episode and take a listen. And after that, let us know what you think. Shoot us a message at postreports at washpost.com. 
I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.